0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world.
1: Enjoy the podcast. Well, thanks very much, everybody. We're going to get, uh, get started uh, now. I'm Tony Capon, the director of the Planetary Health Platform here at the University of Sydney. And uh, we're delighted to have you here with us this evening for this session on is the health sector key to a low-carbon world? As we begin, uh, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices today within the university, uh, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in Aboriginal custodianship of country. And that's particularly apposite tonight because uh, we're hosted this evening by the Planetary Health Platform And Indigenous people here in Australia and around the world have an understanding of the connections between their health and the health of the natural environment embedded in their spiritual understandings and their cultural practices. Tonight uh, is co-hosted by Wiser Healthcare and we'll be hearing from Alex Barrett shortly a bit more about uh, Wiser Healthcare and the fit uh, with the concept of planetary health. As I said, uh, in December uh, last year, we launched uh, the Planetary Health Platform here, a new multidisciplinary initiative across all of the faculties. And it's an opportunity uh, for further innovation and integration across the multidisciplinary institutes that are well established on the campus. You'd know that the University of Sydney has been investing much of its new money in multidisciplinary research and education for the last seven or eight years. Uh, The Charles Perkins Centre is one example, but there are a number of other uh, multidisciplinary institutes in the Faculty of Medicine, uh, including the Murray Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and... uh, 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 I think it's Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity and the Brain and Mind Centre, which is long established here at the university, one of the first uh, cross-disciplinary institutes established here, but also in other faculties, Uh, the Sydney Environment Institute, which uh, brings a a social science and humanities perspective uh, to environmental challenges and the recently established Sydney Institute of Agriculture, for example, uh, focusing on... Our sustainable agri-food systems and human well-being and health. Tonight uh, we're going to focus on the environmental consequences of health care. Uh, when we think about health, we tend to think about doctors and nurses and uh, other health services. Uh, we think about Uh, the treatments that we can offer, our marvellous uh, advances in biomedicine of course uh, in recent decades. Uh, We think to some extent uh, about uh, prevention, we probably don't think enough about prevention, health is often much more about uh, our approach to healthcare is often much more about illness and I know this is a great concern uh, to uh, David Pension, uh, one of our speakers tonight. When we think about health, we also sometimes think about uh, the social determinants of health. Uh, uh, income, uh, the wider economy, uh, the political context, the power relationships in society. But somehow, uh, when we think about health, we often overlook uh, the environmental foundations of health. and. It really should be much more fundamental in our thinking because our health and well-being, indeed uh, the survival of the human species, is entirely dependent on the health of natural systems. Uh, For the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, all of the other day-to-day resources that we derive from nature. And uh, uh, indeed uh, Hippocrates... uh, the father of modern medicine, uh, was writing about this thousands of years ago, more than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece. He wrote a book on airs, waters and places. So it's fundamental understanding in the history of medicine and health discourse, but somehow it's not central here at the beginning of the 21st century. And tonight is uh, at least partly Uh, about uh, reclaiming that understanding and exploring it uh, together. So we've got four great speakers and uh, I'll give you an overview introduction uh, to them now and then we'll ask them uh, uh, to speak in turn. So David Pension, uh, who is a British uh, medical doctor, uh, has had a long and distinguished career Uh, mostly uh, working in various roles within the national health system and the broader public health system in the UK. He also spent some time uh, working uh, with civil society organisations in China. David founded the NHS Sustainable Development Unit 10 years ago, Uh, the first uh, unit of its kind. And he has really been an international leader Uh, since the founding of the the, uh, the SDU, it's called, the NHS SDU, and uh, has been working closely with colleagues around the world to try and advance uh, this thinking. He stepped down uh, from that role, uh, that founding role, uh, just a few months ago, and we were delighted uh, that he accepted our invitation to spend a month with us. Uh, here at the University of Sydney, uh, so that we could benefit uh, from what he'd learnt uh, in that 10-year period. So David uh, will give us a bit of an overview to open up uh, the conversation. Uh, David's presentation uh, will be followed by uh, Dr Arunima Malik, who is a lecturer here at the University of Sydney in sustainability, and she has a joint appointment between our School of Physics and the School of Business. We'll then hear uh, from Alex Barrett, who has a lead role in uh, the Wiser Healthcare Initiative, which receives uh, research funding from NHMRC and other sources. You can see uh, the Wiser Healthcare owl uh, over there on the banner. And we'll look forward to hearing from Alex about the work of Wiser Healthcare and the relationship uh, Uh, to planetary health. Our final speaker is Greg Stewart, who's an alumnus of of the University of Sydney in both medicine and public health. And Greg's had a distinguished career in the New South Wales health system, including as Chief Health Officer. He's currently on the executive of the Sydney uh, Southeastern Local Health District, uh, leading on primary and community care. So I think um, a great range of speakers. I think we've allocated uh, uh, David 20 or 30 minutes to lead things off and the others, uh, shorter interventions for five minutes or so each so that we've got plenty of time uh, for a conversation uh, following those uh, uh, interventions, if you like. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to, to welcome David, and uh, let's make him feel welcome here uh, on the campus. Thanks very much.
2: Oh, thank you very much. It's always a bit worrying when people applaud before you've said anything, because you never know. Anyway, thank you very much to the University of Sydney, particularly to Tony Capon and Alex Barrett for co-hosting me here. If this event is anything like the events we run in the UK, then all the most interesting things are going to be said by you, not us. So all my job is to give you some warm-up to stimulate the most stimulating, provocative, and publishable questions from the floor. Is that okay? Um, So I'm just going to tell you a few stories, really, um, about um, well, 10 years in the NHS doing this, but 50 years doing it in civic society. And uh, when you see what little progress we've made, it's a, it's a salutary lesson to how unsuccessful you can be through your whole career. Um, but uh, what I'll do is I'll start with a quiz question. I'll start, this is a very cheery slide, I'm afraid, of a grave, a mass grave, actually. Um, these are 45 graves here, unmarked coffins. Now, which country is this? 45 unmarked coffins. I'm sorry that it's such a negative, tragic Picture to start with. Does anybody know which country this is? Mass grave? Not Sierra Leone? No. let me give you a, let me give you a clue. Okay, so that's lady is Elaine Egdorf with her nine-year-old daughter, Megan, looking at that collection. This, these graves are about to be covered over. Okay, I'll tell you, it's Chicago. This is Chicago in 1995 when one of the worst heat waves to hit Chicago hit the city. Now, Chicago is used to heat waves. There's nothing complex about heat waves. We know how to manage heat waves. But the civic society screwed up really badly here. And what's another inter- in- interesting thing about this picture is that when this lady, who's a social historian, came down to pay respects to these people, in unmarked graves. Do you notice anything else about the picture? It's not a great picture, but do you know anything else about it? The- exactly! There's nobody else there. There are three people there a social historian, her granddaughter, and a photographer. There's nobody else there. What killed these people was screwed up civic structures and something else called loneliness. These people died alone. The people who should have been responsible for this managing this heat wave, were 400 miles north, keeping cool in their plush second homes, leaving volunteers to go to the poorest parts of Chicago, knock on the door at 3 a, knock on doors of people like this at 3 a.m. in the morning and say, come to the shopping mall, which is air conditioned, which is a standard procedure. What do you do when you live in the most crime ridden part of a city living alone and someone knocks on your door at 3 in the morning? Well, you certainly don't open it. You come out of there two days later in a body bag. Chicago and heat wave. And this is the local health services. Six refrigerated trucks, because the mortuary is way overloaded, failing to cope. Now, a lot of this is due to the way we live our lives, knowingly live our lives, but the health sector has a profound opportunity and a profound responsibility, as do health professionals, to speak up about this issue. Not because climate change is an environmental issue, but because climate change is a health issue. And we don't do it. And if you ever want a ripping read, which is an also a true story, this is a fantastic sociological analysis by a journalist, no less. A journalist about a social autopsy of a disaster in Chicago, showing how human systems are very fragile and can go badly, badly wrong. And incidentally, and importantly, it will always be the most vulnerable people in society who pick up the tab, okay? So the time is now. So we had a um, a heatwave exactly eight years later in Europe in 2003 which killed prematurely between 30 and 60,000 people. And only two things happened because of that. One is the French Minister of Health was sacked. Puh, big deal. And secondly, the UK instituted annual health heatwave plans, which was a, a good outcome. But actually nothing really changed because of this. And in Paris, exactly the same happened as happened in Chicago eight years previously. Lessons were not learned. Lessons were not even acknowledged, actually. Whenever you hear someone say, we learned lessons, just remember whether you really mean that or whether you, lessons were acknowledged but not learned. So climate change damages health. All of you, I suspect, in this um, room know that. We know it happens through gastroenteritis, through cataracts of Indian women farming, through dengue fever, through malignant melanoma, which you know well in this country, but also through things like extreme weather events, flooding, heatwave, bushfires, and, of course, flooding. Now, health professionals are pretty good at these. We like these, actually. These are diseases with interventions, and we do diseases. That's what we were trained to do. But these things down here are slightly more system things. You know, what is the role of the health services in keeping services going during flooding? or bushfires, or heat waves or other extreme weather events. And what happens when we have crop failure, or drought, or economic collapse, or migration, or civil disorder? And what's that last slide of? Easter Island. Easter Island. So if you don't know what happened in Easter Island, it's a perfect microcosm on that little planet of what we're doing on the whole planet in terms of societal collapse. What do you think they were doing on Easter Island when they cut down the last tree? How pathological can societies become when they know they're effectively committing suicide? And that's exactly what we're doing. But, of course, we're totally insulated from that by all this wealth and civilization around us. We are immune from the effects of what we do. So here's a uh, a map, a cartograph, which you'll understand quickly which represents the countries of the world and the greenhouse gas emissions and how they reflect climate change and each country's responsibility and contribution to that. You can see that our contribution in terms of per capita greenhouse gases pretty closely allies to our so-called wealth and so-called development. But if I said to you, now let's look at the consequences of those greenhouse gases, where do people die in the world because of those greenhouse gases emissions? And I'll show you the next slide. If you look very carefully, you'll be able to see a very slight difference in the pattern of where the consequences fall compared to who or- originates the gas emissions, and they are those. Okay? So if you, just, if you miss that bit, I'll do it again for you. So that's who produces it, and that's who dies because of it. And these are good WHO climate change statistics. So this is not just a technical issue. It's not a climate issue. It's not a health issue just... It's a social justice issue which we can easily measure and which is happening on our watch now. This is not a future issue. This is a here and now issue. So climate change isn't just an environmental issue, it's a health issue. And one of my words of advice to you, for those of you who work in the health area, is frame it as such. This is a health issue. A lot of very effective legislation went on in air quality in the United States because air quality was framed as a health issue not as an over there environmental issue. You don't want to catch doctors and nurses saying, I don't do climate change, that's an environmental issue, I do health, that's a separate issue. Don't let people kid themselves that way. So one of the first things we did in the UK was bind this issue into the mantra of the health service. What does the health service do? What is it there to do? It is there to provide high quality healthcare for all now and for future generations. So bind in the mantra of the organization what you're there to do and remember that we're custodians of the future, not just of the present. If you want to put it another way, put it like that. The advantage of that is all those things on the right are very desirable things, exactly the things that Tony was just talking about, that Hippocrates talked about, air, water and places not something politically contentious like that, which starts a very contentious, political, completely non-rational debate about what we're doing, knowingly doing to uh, prospects, or put it like that. So one of the lessons is you have to frame this issue. So the story behind this is that I went to talk to a, a local government in England, and I saw this in the foyer as I was going to talk to the, all the local politicians, and I thought, "That's very good, but great." So I took a photograph, and I went up and I inserted it into the slide set. And I thought, two cheers for what you're doing in terms of travel plans for your staff in this big organization. One thing you might want to do is I couldn't find anywhere to park my bicycle outside this organization. So there's one thing saying this: great. You've got to do it as well. Saying things, feeling strongly about things. Speaking up is very, very important, but it's not enough. You have to do it. You have to do it as well. Similar things like this, where we've completely lost the plot about what it means to be physically active in the world. Now, it's, one of the advantages of showing slides like this is that it's a much more gentle way to use humor to engage people into the madness of how we live our lives. Because if, if you get up and berate people, which I've been trying to do very <laughs> successfully for many years is you make a lot of enemies. But if you use humor and do it gently and show good data and tell good stories, you're going to get a lot further, and the health service can do this. The health professionals can do it as well. Uh, uh, so th- this is another, yet another situation, which I'm sure you've seen slides like this before. So this is the reality of what's happening. We're living in a world like frogs in boiling water. The, the one of the big dangers of climate change this is happening slowly enough for us to think we can adapt to it, adapt to it, but quickly enough for it to kill us. But in fact, just a point of order here. Uh, it's probably not climate change that's going to kill us, by the way. You'd be happy to know that. It's, there's one thing much more dangerous than climate change on this planet, and that's human beings. Uh, so it's, probably cl- it's not climate change that's going to kill us. It's what climate change makes us do to each other. That's going to kill us. So beware that uh, we are fallen angels. We are highly creative, but we haven't evolved to, to we haven't you know, developed over thousands and tens of thousands of years to face such a rapid change in the environment in which we uh, find ourselves. So here, uh, if you take, this could be anything. This could be extreme weather events. Uh, it could be heat waves. It could be global mean temperatures. But if you take um, a threshold above which we should not go, let's say that line, you can see to the left that we have one in 100-year events. But we're somewhere along here now. So the the issue, if you talk to anybody in climate science, is we're having one in 100-year events about every four or five years. And by 2050, we're going to be having one in 100-year events every year. So the real killer heat waves or the real killer floods or the real killer droughts, we're having now are going to happen on an annual basis. They're going to be the new normal. So the, re- the issue is slow motion emergencies dramatically increase the frequency, the severity, and the duration of dangerous weather events. Okay? And that's incredibly important because we have in the health service this idea. And the reason this word here is used is emergency. We love emergencies in the health system. Bring them on. We're crisis junkies. We love things coming through the front door we don't know. So we have to use language where we say to people, these emergencies are going to become normal. They are becoming normal, already. So here's an example of some of the things we're doing in the UK. This is a hospital here, big hospital, very carbon intensive, huge user of resources, huge user of energy huge emitter of carbon dioxide, particulate matter, nitrous oxides. Is that a price worth paying? Well, that hospital needed rebuilding, and indeed it was rebuilt, and there you see it being rebuilt. And there you see the old hospital gone. Okay? So one of the things about the future is hospitals will become smaller and smarter and only do in We'll be only doing things in a hospital that only a hospital can do. Does anybody know why hospitals exist? While we have hospitals? Who, who benefits from hospitals? Oh. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, they're all... I mean, they are... Don't feel they're built for the benefit of patients. They're, benefit, they're built for the convenience of professionals who work in them. Um, so one of the things about hospitals is, and healthcare systems in general, they contribute hugely to the local economy. They're big employers. They're big buyers. They're big polluters. And actually, this is actually from uh, Ted Howard um, in the uh, uh, works in the United States who runs a democracy collaboration, showing that like universities, healthcare systems can be hugely powerful, positive contributors to the social value of the community by analyzing how they contribute fairly to local economy, local jobs, local prosperity, local sustainability. And that should be measured. And one should be proud to do it. One should not need to be scrutinized. So here's a hospital, a typical hospital in the UK. This hospital in the UK, by my friend John, has completely, this is in Nottingham, uh, Nottingham, okay. Uh, it's a completely revolutionized the food system in this town, completely revolutionized it, such that instead of having cooked chill meals shipped across, the country in big lorries and trucks overnight, double-wrapped, to be warmed up, to be presented as so-called food for patients. Local farmers have been encouraged to get into the economic system. Local people work in the kitchens. Local people use these hospital kitchens as a community resource. They walk into the hospital, not to outpatients or to be treated, but because it's a community centre where they can eat in the good, local, organic, sustainable food. How much did this system cost? Nothing. It kept six million pounds inside the economy of this local city. This is a good news story where we can add social value, where we can add economic value, where we can add environmental value, as well as to the primary role of a healthcare system, which is to treat sick people. This picture in the background here shows some young Ten-year-olds making surgical instruments. I, didn't know, I don't know if you know, but, and I certainly didn't know, that half the surgical instruments in the world, high-quality steel instruments, start their lives in northern Pakistan, in a small area famous for starting this. Half of it in well-regulated factories, but the other half in the most appalling and dangerous sweatshops. Now, in, in the UK, we spend £20 billion a year on stuff like this. If we manage supply chains, if we didn't incinerate everything, but instead of recycling things properly, like the rest of civic society did, we could have a huge impact uh, and also contribute hugely to the protection of the labor rights in these global supply chains, in countries of which historically most of us know very little and care even less. So health professionals are trusted. Um, and we should use that trust and that responsibility and that influence extremely wisely, and we could use it a lot more. This is an example of a hospital in Northern Ireland where if I go and visit hospitals in the UK, I get off at the train station, I almost don't need to open my phone and look at Google Maps. I can tell where the hospital is because it has a huge chimney belching smoke. Okay? But if every hospital did what this hospital did, and that's use a government grant to pay for its wind for, for renewable generation of energy, because it has land, and pay it back within two years, and every subsequent year, earn money by generating power, energy, that they can feed into the economic system of their local hospital. That would be good, wouldn't it? So can we do this? Well, we've tried very hard in the U.K. And we've reduced our footprint by over 10% in 10 years, which is along the trajectory required by the IPCC and COP21, only just. And there's a lot more work to do. And at the same time, we've increased activity by nearly 20%. So is it possible? It is possible. uh, By a huge amount of hard work, almost none of it from me. Um, So I'll end on a cheery note. The future is already happening. It's just unevenly distributed. So here's a concentrated solar power, which some of you will recognize. This is a photograph taken in Portugal. This makes, uh, this turns sunlight into energy. Uh, now, we could do, we could easily, easily power the world in 2050, 10 billion people. We could certainly power Europe easily. Uh, we, could power the, we could power the world too because the distribution of hot places. So any of you in the university or elsewhere who are into global energy will know that it's easy to power the world with fossil free electricity. Technically, it's not difficult. Geopolitically, it's a nightmare. Okay. And something else will happen which is really great news for the health and welfare and well-being of the world. What happens when you move all that energy from these north, from this country, these countries to these countries if you're going to move the energy north what's going to come south money money what else is going to come is in these areas here you can exactly exactly and you can dump the excess by desalinating that sea You can irrigate and you can shade and you can feed. So you can simultaneously address two of the great crimes we're committing unto each other. One is complete global unsustainability and one is the obscene levels of poverty. If Martians were circulating the earth now, they would look down and they would be not one bit surprised that we have climate change because of this buried sunshine we discovered 200 years ago. They wouldn't be surprised by that. They would think, Look at that semi-intelligent life form down there. You know, They discovered oil, which has brought wealth and prosperity to almost half the world's population. And they, w- they will think, isn't that interesting? Because when they discover what they're doing, boy, they're going to have to pull their socks up. So what they do is they land, and they open any newspaper they like in the world, and they think, oh, my goodness, they know exactly what they're doing. That's what would shock them. Not that we're creating climate change, that we know it and we're doing almost nothing about it. Where, ironically, there are all these wonderful solutions that can be led by people who would see the the technology, the interdisciplinarity needed in order to implement these things. So 200 years of health professionals and health systems taking political action. You may not know that slavery was abolished largely through the initiatives in Europe of health professionals in 1833. Cholera, many of you will know the story about John Snow, looking at what caused recurrent outbreaks of cholera in London and other big cities in Europe. Smoking tobacco, nuclear proliferation, alcohol, obesity. All these things were driven not just by health professionals, but health professionals in partnership with other civil activists. But I have to say that I'm not confident that health professionals are stepping up to the mark yet in terms of sustainable development. So the thesis set by this Sydney Ideas is, can the health sector tip? And the answer is, not only can it, but it absolutely must. We have a great opportunity happening on our watch, and it will be our legacy. So I commend the motion to the House. We absolutely need to do this. And I'll be very interested to be Chris scrutinized and hear your thoughts when we've heard the other three speakers at the end of the evening. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thanks very much, David. I think you've got us off to a very good start there. So now I'd like uh, to invite uh, Dr. Arunima Malik to tell us a bit about some research he's been doing here on the campus.
3: Thanks, Tony. Um, And following on from David's presentation about the need for measuring environmental impacts of healthcare, I'm going to give a quick overview of the study that we did at the School of Physics uh, for quantifying the carbon footprint of Australia's healthcare sector. So our study found uh, that the carbon footprint of Australia's healthcare sector is 36 megatons, which is 7% of Australia's total footprint. So if you have to picture this footprint um, in terms of filling up fishing containers, let's say 40 feet fishing containers, you would need about 365 million of those containers to fill this much gas. Um, You can also picture it in a way that this um, is the footprint um, or the emissions released by South Australians, for example. Now, what does this figure include? So, for this particular study, we looked at the range of categories in the healthcare sector, and we made this pie chart. So, the 36 megatons... Uh, They mostly come from public hospitals, private hospitals, and pharmaceuticals. So these three categories make up about 65% of Australia's carbon, uh, carbon footprint of Australia's healthcare sector. And then you've got other categories as well. So for this particular case study, we looked at a range of supply chains. So we did a supply chain assessment to see what are the sort of inputs that go into the healthcare sector. So you know that the economy is interconnected with all these different sectors feeding into other sectors. You have a sector producing a product which then gets used up as input by another sector for adding value to that product to produce another product and then so on and so forth. So for the supply chain assessment for Australia's healthcare sector, we looked at the upstream supply chain. So you have Australia's healthcare sector at the bottom here And if you picture the economy um, as different sort of sectors, you have a range of food sectors, resources, other sorts of goods, energy and services, and each of these sectors provide inputs to the healthcare sector. Now, if the healthcare sector needs inputs from each of these sectors, then these sectors in turn will need to buy inputs from other sectors in the upstream supply chain for producing those inputs for feeding into the healthcare sector. So in a way, you have an upstream supply chain tree. So your tree goes like this. Now if you're only doing conventional life cycle assessment, then you often have to draw a boundary. Um, and the boundary looks something like, you know, I'm only going to consider the impacts in the first two layers of production, because it's not possible for us to go and collect data for all these supply chains. Instead, for this particular case study, we followed a hybrid approach, so a hybrid life cycle assessment, Uh, using input-output methodology, which allowed us to not only get detailed data for Australia's healthcare sector, but also combine that data set with information about the economy as a whole. So the interactions between different sectors in the economy. We did this study on the Australian Industrial Ecology Virtual Laboratory, which was developed at the University of Sydney in collaboration with six other universities and it is a cloud computing platform that allows you to develop models, supply chain models, um, in terms of the research question that you have in mind. So we developed a supply chain model on the Industrial Ecology Virtual Laboratory and we integrated a range of data sets. So we had information about the healthcare expenditure for each of the different categories, hospitals, uh, private and public, uh, pharmaceuticals and so on. We also had information about input-output accounts, the interactions between different sectors in the economy, and we also had information about greenhouse gas emissions. We integrated these three data sets into this platform, harmonised them, and then we did a supply chain assessment, scanning more than a million supply chains to calculate the carbon footprint of Australia's healthcare sector. Happy to take questions. I had to keep it short. Thank Thank you.
1: Thanks, Eimer. I, I think uh, there'll be opportunity to talk more about those methods later on tonight. And uh, just for your information, earlier today, uh, David and Eimer and I have spent uh, uh, time with a med tech company in Western Sydney, uh, exploring uh, options for new research projects to increase the granularity of that sort of research within the broader healthcare system. So now it's time for us to hear from Alex Barrett, uh, who has a lead role uh, with Wiser health, Healthcare. Thanks very much, Alex.
0: Hi, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Tony's already drawn attention to our owl over there. So I'm very pleased to be here representing the research collaboration of Wiser Healthcare. I'm a professor of public health in the School of Public Health. That means that I'm interested in the sort of interventions and things that we do to whole populations, as uh, in contrast with my clinical colleagues who do healthcare interventions one patient at a time across a desk or an operating theatre. So Wiser Healthcare takes a population approach and aims to improve the quality of all our lives, because we all interact with the healthcare system, By reducing inadvertent harms of healthcare and making the healthcare system more sustainable both economically and environmentally. So I just want to give you one example. So in the late 1990s the incidence of thyroid cancer, number of new cases of thyroid cancer in South Korea was about 5 per 100,000 of population in the 1990s and then South Korea is a very technologically advanced country. In fact, it's got one of the highest rates of things like CAT scanners and other imaging equipment in the world. The government decided that they were going to introduce a number of cancer screening programs. They didn't actually introduce screening for thyroid cancer, but very um, entrepreneurial-minded providers, thinking that they were doing a good thing, decided that they would offer thyroid cancer screening as well as other sorts of cancer screenings. And that's what, that started in 1999. And you can see that what happened was the incidence of thyroid cancer started going up and up and up. By 2011, it had increased to 70 per 100,000, so approximately 15-fold increase. And thyroid cancer became the most commonly diagnosed cancer in South Korea. What that meant was that about 15 times as many people as before had to have thyroid operations to take out their thyroid cancers. They had to then go on lifetime medications for thyroid to replace their thyroid hormones, which they could no longer make themselves. And uh, many were treated with irradiation too. So doing this introduced a whole lot of harms for all those people. It also burdened the system with all these extra cases. But meanwhile, as you can see, the mortality, this is the mortality line down the bottom here, did not change one jot. So people started to ask, well, is this really an epidemic of thyroid cancer or is this an epidemic of diagnosis? And they decided that actually it was an epidemic of diagnosis and a campaign was begun to stop the thyroid cancer screening. By 2015, the tide had turned And the number of people having operations to remove their thyroid cancers had approximately halved. So the point of the story is that some diagnosis in healthcare is really beneficial. And probably many, if not all of us, have benefited from that in our lives. But too much diagnosis leads to turning well people into patients and exposing them to treatments that they don't need and can't benefit from and actually that harm them. Too much diagnosis also loads up the system with people who don't need to be there, which means that the really sick people are at risk of being underdiagnosed and undertreated. So it's actually um, inequitable and it's a bit of an issue of social justice as well. And in this way, it directs resources really poorly in ways which are wasteful and inequitable. And finally, it contributes to uh, an unsustainable healthcare system. It's unsustainable in terms of the burden on people, it's unsustainable in the sense that it costs more money, it's really bad for healthcare budgets, but it's also unsustainable because, as Aramina was just explaining to us, it's one of the ways in which the envelope of the healthcare system expands and uses up more hospital beds, more clinics, and more pharmaceuticals, more operating theatre resources, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the point at which planetary health and the initiatives to create a more sustainable world intersect with the work that we do in wiser healthcare. It's quite a um, complicated intersection, and uh, so, you know, I look forward to having questions and talking more about it with you as the evening goes on.
1: Thanks very much for that, Alex. So our final speaker is Greg Stewart. Uh, and as I said, uh, he's uh, in a leadership role with uh, Sydney Southeast Local Health District. And he's going to offer some reflections um, from the coalface, if you like, of uh, the New South Wales Health System. So over to you, Greg.
4: Well, um, hello, everyone. Uh, Yes, that says a senior manager, that means I'm old. (laughs) I've been working, at the end of this year, 40 years in the New South, full-time in the New South Wales Health System, apart from a couple of years when I worked in the NHS, which was a wonderful experience. And I've done about 30 years um, in managing various services. As Tony said, I currently manage community health services and this interesting agenda called integrated care. um, But I'm a public health doctor by training. And for the last about a dozen years, I've been... Uh, I suppose grappling uh, is, is the right description with um, what, a, what that, the health system can do. In, in, in my case, my local health system, I mean, it's still important for us to remember that we should think globally and act locally, although I also like the, to think that we should think locally and act locally. And, it, and it's not easy. Uh, I've just got a few slides here um, about, I suppose, in some ways, uh, the things that I've learned over, over that period... I've been involved in two different uh, local health districts, area health services where we've developed sustainability plans and they have achieved some things, many things in some ways. It's not true to say that the New South Wales health system hasn't addressed this issue, it has addressed it. But I think what we've lacked in New South Wales and probably uh, across Australia is is a, a, um, a sort of integrating strategy or an integrating narrative about what we should do as a health system Um, And I think um, David's presence here just emphasises whilst you're no longer in charge of the Sustainable Development Unit, the NHS uh, started dealing with this 10 years ago and created that integrated strategy and integrated narrative. In fact, the only climate change and health strategy we have, it hasn't been produced by any government, it's been produced by an organisation called the Climate and Health Alliance. I've got a slide on it later. Um, But I don't want to be pessimistic about this. There's there's an awful lot of stuff we have done and a lot more we can do. The answer to the question is the health sector key to a low-carbon world is undoubtedly yes. Not necessarily because we put out 7%, all that's important, but because of this reframing of an issue. Uh, This isn't just about uh, climate, this is about health. And it's striking that at COP21, so that's 21 councils of parties around climate change, that was the first time in Paris a couple of years ago that the head of the WHO actually came along and addressed... Uh, that council of parties and said this is a health issue and now the WHO, late to the game, but at any rate have now become very, very engaged in that because it is a health issue. I'm not a person who says in 200 years the planet might be finished (coughs) but there's a plausible argument that might be the case. Uh, You know... um, Uh, There are uh, canaries in the mine, and the Barry Reef's obviously one of those, but you don't really need canaries at all. Um, Just look at uh, the the big climate events that are happening more and more frequently. I think probably it was in this very room that I heard Jurgen Klinsmann, who wrote Limits to Growth a few years ago, introduced by um, Paul Gilding, who's written a very interesting book called The Great Disruption, which argues that, in fact, we will get past uh, this climate change issue because... You know, the system, in fact, in some ways the capitalist system will sort it. I'm a bit sceptical about that. But Gilding said in relation to hu- Hurricane Sandy in 2012 uh, that the solution uh, to the whole issue of climate change would be for the Americans to spend, I think he said, 3% of GDP on renewable energies. But, of course, they, they're not gonna, they wouldn't do that. They'll spend 3% of GDP building a big moat around, uh, around New York Island and that's the kind of perversity we have. And it is a highly political and highly contested area. Um, and one um, that, in the stuff that I'm describing, which won't take me too long, um, uh, you know, is difficult. You know, I, I work in, in, a, in a health system where, uh, you know, one has to, um, has to make sure that the things we do are things that are in accordance with government policy, in accordance with it, practical and realistic. So, I love this slide. This is uh, Chris Rapley, uh, head of the, Antarc- the British Antarctic Survey. I mean, you don't need to know anything more about the science of climate change um, that's all there is to know. There's no contest in this anymore. Um, and, and I won't go, go in. Sustainability, important to think about. This is an intergenerational issue. Since I've been working in the New South Wales health system for 40 years, you won't be surprised to know that I've got a bunch of grandchildren. And and, and, and it's important to keep emphasising that fact. The co-benefits are important as well. I'm not going to give you a lecture on climate change here today, but um, the co-benefits are really critical if you address climate change. I like this because... I'd much rather be in the mitigation boat than being in the adaptation boat, but of course we have to adapt as well. Um, This is the Kaha framework, a very nice framework, Um, and as I say, only just released last year, and just recently, in the last less than a week, the Australian Labor Party has said that it will now incorporate in its health platform uh, the need to have a, a health and climate strategy, which is good. So what can we do? And look, I'm not going to, again, go go in at length about the kind of things you can do locally. This work David will be completely familiar with because we stole it completely from the Sustainable Development Unit in the NHS when I started doing this 10, 12 years ago. That was the place to go to and it remains the place to go to in terms of just a logical and rational approach to the kind of things you might do. It's all very well to think about the highly contested political area. We're all citizens and we should be involved and engaged in that kind of debate. But as the German philosopher Marx once said, the philosophers have hitherto interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And those are the kind of things we can do. Pharmaceuticals and purchasing is important and difficult. And it's quite interesting when you measure carbon output in in a health system, which I've done in my health system, it isn't... Well, it is partly, but the majority of it is not about our energy uh, use. Our energy use is maybe 15%. Or our transport, it's tiny. It's about procurement and the stuff that we buy in. Uh, And and an answer to that is, is, uh, you know, complex and difficult. Uh, And and here are another set of things we need to do. Measuring is absolutely critical, of course. What you measure, you manage. And what we need in this uh, health system in New South Wales is regular and up-to-date measurements about what we're doing in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the issue, of course, is to do... In, in health is quite correctly described as a complex adaptive system. Now, in the natural world, the most obvious complex adaptive system is an ant's nest. It always used to amuse me when the quality people talked about quality in terms of complex adaptive systems, because we're clearly more than ants. We have agency. But the more you think about change in big complex systems, the more you think about it in that kind of, uh, in that kind of light. This one happens to be about sustainable development, but it's just, you know, kind of noodle nation thing. It's not quite as much as uh, uh, Aranema's earlier. That had more, more, more lines on it. Um, and it does strike me that, what that what's required there and that kind of self-correcting system that works at the base level, not by top-down, uh, that you need a whole lot of engagement. And so after, you know, a long time at it, you know, I kind of reduced this to these five things. Uh, we do have a key role. The co-benefits are important that we have... Responsibilities personally and collectively to be engaged in this work. Um, undoubtedly executive leadership is critical. And because the system is driven by clinicians, clinician engagement is absolutely important. I'll leave it there, Tony. Thanks,
1: Greg. Why don't you just um, stay with us, Greg. I'll ask all of our speakers to come and sit uh, out the front here uh, on the panel. And uh, we've got two microphones. Uh, uh, up the back uh, for questions and looking forward to, um, to now having a lively conversation. I can see hands uh, already going up, the, perhaps the first um, hand down here uh, in the centre. Uh, as, uh, just as we get uh, started, I'd just like to pick up on some of those final points um, uh, from Greg, that uh, uh, one of the things that uh, has become clear in recent years that Uh, framing uh, climate change as a human health challenge is really helping to cut through in terms of conversations uh, with communities, uh, potentially with elected officials, uh, with people from business, uh, across society more generally. And in fact it was uh, uh, President Obama when he was in the White House who really encouraged that framing uh, in the United States and around the world uh, through the the uh, Conference of the Party process. And there's three reasons uh, why it's useful. Uh, Firstly, because uh, it makes it personal. If we understand climate change as a health issue and we think back uh, to David's first slide uh, with the graves from the heat wave, uh, people died in that heat wave. It's it's a personal uh, impact of climate change. Notably, it also makes it much more urgent because when we have conversations about climate change, sometimes it's easy for people to think about it as an abstract future problem. But when we understand it as a health problem, we know that people are already dying uh, from extreme weather events. Uh, People's health is being affected from a range of the, uh, the consequences of climate change. So it makes it personal and it makes it urgent. And to come back to Greg's uh, final slide, there is a positive story to tell when we think about health and climate change. And this is also an important part of the narrative. And this idea of co-benefits, the additional health benefits we get from transitions to sustainable ways of living. Uh, Whether it's eating a vegetable-rich diet which is better for our health as well as less of a footprint on the planet, Uh, whether it's walking and cycling in the city rather than using a motor car when we can. That's good physical activity, good for uh, both physical and mental well-being. So those positive transitions, uh, perhaps the most obvious of them uh, in this country, are the transition, the urgent need for a transition from coal-fired, uh, power generation to renewable power generation. And yes, that will drastically reduce our carbon footprint as a nation, but it will also improve the health of people who live close to those coal fired power stations, uh, whether they're in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria or the Hunter Valley uh, here in New South Wales. So those toxic emissions are already uh, affecting people's health on a daily basis. And so the transition uh, will realise these co-benefits for health. So uh, as I open it up, I think we've got our first question here. Please uh, feel free to put your hand up. We've got another microphone, so we'll get underway. Thanks very much.
5: That was a wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. That was quite interesting. I'm going to present a, a sort of a counterpoint of view. It may be going off the topic of what is the the focus of discussion today, but I still want to raise it. But if it's off the topic, I'm happy to just uh, uh, not have further discussion on that. When we talk of the uh, climate change, when you talk of health and its impact on climate change, to me, the bigger issue is we live in a world where the underlying assumption is an infinite growth, infinite resources, be it economy, be it population, be it the way our political processes work, it always assumes there is going to be a constant growth. Correct? So, and if we can see in over a period of time, population has grown exponentially. We are now projecting, yeah, it is going to level off after some time. Is it really going to level off? We lived through a time when one of our treasurers said that produce one for the mom, one for dad, and one for the country. So. There would be countries, and I have lived in countries, where they constantly encourage population growth because that's the underlying model of their economic survival. So, uh, so in that context, no matter what we do in healthcare, no matter what we do in terms of reducing the carbon footprint, if the population is growing, if the whole economy is dependent on constant growth, is it like arranging deck chairs in the
1: Titanic? Definitely a very important question. We'll see if... Uh, uh, David,
2: would you like to have a go
1: at that one as, a, as our special guest?
2: Yeah, um, you raise a good point. There's no doubt about it, that having more people doesn't help. But let me, in the spirit of pro- suggesting counterfactuals, is that the the, democrat- the demographic evidence that population is levelling off is good. It seems... Highly unlikely that we'll surpass about 10 to 11 billion. We're currently at 7.5 billion. Now, that's quite a lot more people, and we've had doubling times of population going from 1,500 years to about 30 years. So the, you're absolutely right; it's been exponential growth. That does not help. However, however, the the, the total burden is the total population multiplied by the per capita impact. You know, you can understand that. Now, although going from 7.5 to 11 billion sounds a big increase, that's nothing like the variability in the per capita impact of wealthy versus poor countries. So how many people in this room know what their carbon footprint is? Okay. How many people in in this room know what their rough income is? Okay, so they're both very important for the health and benefit and welfare of the people you love and care for. Okay, so as Greg said, measure it. Now, what you'll find is that we can have a much bigger impact by contracting and converging the variability in our per capita carbon footprints from 20 to 25 if you live in certain Middle East countries or the United States down to about 05 if you live in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, people in sub-Saharan Africa desperately need to increase their carbon footprint to stay alive. But everybody in this room needs to decrease it, and we need to converge on a a number, roughly 10 billion, roughly about 2 tonnes per person per year, which is well calculated as the carrying capacity of planet Earth. And that will have the advantage of doing those twin things, reducing our ecological impact, but also levelling the obscene levels, differences, and opportunity. So you're absolutely right. If we had a magic wand and we could hold the world's population at 7.5, we would. But it's not going to happen because it's been tried in China, it's been tried in India, it doesn't really work, it's been done very unethically, and there's a much better journey, which is focusing on per capita ecological footprint.
1: Thanks very much, David. I think I might just add something as well about... uh, the the concept of prosperity without growth. And you may be familiar with the work of Tim Jackson, the uh, ecological economist at Surrey. And I think that's another part of the story, that uh, uh, your your point about, uh, if you like, it's almost a lazy economic model that we can uh, only develop the economy by uh, growing the number of people, uh, including in this country. It's, It's very simplistic. It's, uh, it's, it's not true. You know, we can continue to develop the economy, importantly, by focusing on distribution, uh, because uh, uh, the biggest uh, challenges are the equity challenges. Uh, we've, we've probably got enough uh, energy around the world. We've got enough food around the world. Uh, we're just not sharing it well. So we can be prosperous uh, without growing the numbers of people and the numbers of dollars uh, in the world. So, I, I think over here next. Yeah.
6: Um, I'm just asking, there's a lot of um, waste, like the single-use plastic things that mm. are everywhere. Um, in the food, they're not produced in the local hospitals anymore. They're produced in, I don't know, factory sort of things. The um, y- Leaving um, computers on in administration offices when people aren't there, which is ridiculous. I don't understand why they do it. And that they've... Now everything's electronic, but there's still paperwork because you know electronics doesn't always work. So you have to have backup, and it's, it's like the um, with our assignments and everything. You sometimes you have to put in a physical copy as well as electronic copy because you don't know what's happening with it because it can disappear. But that's the thing is we're not, um, and the community kitchen in the hospitals. It would be wonderful because a lot of Places where, because I live in Western Sydney, there are cultural deserts. There's no fresh food available in places. There's no shops available in places in some of these suburbs that they've built in the middle of nowhere. And they've, this is years later. This is not, like, now. This is years later. They still haven't built anything there. And the only food place was the local school that had the canine. And then they wonder why Western Sydney's got a diabetes problem and an overweight problem when they don't... Have the resources there for people to use, and they don't teach there's no home economics anymore in school, and we need people need to know how to cook they need to know how to do these things so they don't have to rely on fast food but the the government's just cut it out and it's very important, but it's like it's not it's treated like it's not important anymore and the you know the big um you know big conglomerate thing instead of like okay, now there's little districts, but it's all one system. So why can't they work together to reduce waste and help people? Because that would be more helpful for most people with diabetes and other health issues if they could improve the food and not and in the hospitals not sell soft drinks and stuff and junk food. But they Greg, don't want to do that.
1: Well, thank you very much for that. I, I wonder if um, Greg, would you like to pick up on some of those um, uh, comments about uh, uh, food? Uh, in the health system, uh, some of the challenges there that, that people are facing or, or related aspects of the comments there. Sure, Tony,
4: yeah, sure. But th- this issue about, I, mean, I suppose, in some ways individual responsibility, I mean, if you saw Four Corners last night, you would have seen an absolutely black and white demonstration of people who believe that change in society only occurs because of individuals. George Christensen said that. Uh, you know, I'm a big man because I eat too much. And, and this lack of recognition that, you know, systems are actually absolutely critical. It's a really important point. The problem, of course, is that we don't live in utopia. The people do make decisions and they make all sorts of odd and perverse decisions and all we can do, I suppose, is struggle as a society and as individual people to try and do better. You know, it kind of sounds a bit religious, doesn't it? But at any rate, so far as food and hospitals are concerned, well, the New South Wales Health System has been struggling is the right word for some time about what we do about vending machines, but finally we're doing something. So I heard just yesterday that in my local health district, I think the Director of um, Population Health said 72 vending machines. None of them anymore have fizzy drinks that have got sugar in them. They have fizzy drinks, um, but they're sugar-free fizzy drinks. I did say to her, what about the Mars bars and the chips? She said, that's the next, uh, the next step. <laughs> and it is the next step, so we are doing things about it. But, you know, I mean, just to make the point, um, it's a, it's, you know, there, there's, you know, there's no simple answer to these things. Mm. A colleague of mine said some years ago, if 30 or 40 years ago we had a, said about to make our children fat, we would have done 30 different things. We would have stopped them walking to school, we would have made them feel frightened about doing so, we would have, you know, got a lot of packaged food, uh, so on and so forth. And the answer is the same. We have to have 30 different things to do. It's, there's no simple answer. Although the sugar tax certainly is an answer, part of the answer.
1: Mm. Oh, thanks. David, I was very interested, and I'm sure others were, in, in the example uh, from the hospital in the UK that. Uh, was engaging with the local food system. And, of course, that can be quite challenging when, when you're working with the, as part of a big organization like the NHS, just interested to know uh, how they managed to achieve that uh, and uh, uh, to have some reflections on uh, what might be possible here in Australia as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it goes back to these points you were making. I mean, in, in the health service in the UK, nearly 10% of the total budget, we're talking £110 billion here, nearly 10% of the total budget is spent on one disease, and that is type 2 diabetes. A disease which, in many ways, is largely preventable, and is increasingly understood, not totally preventable, but largely preventable, but also is being understood as a a disease which is, in some aspects, reversible. And all because of issues that you so eloquently described, in terms of The wider food systems. So, this example that I cited um, has some very interesting issues associated with it, which are generically transferable. So, for instance, it was led not from the top of the organization, but for an inspiring middle manager, okay, who'd come from the private sector and said, actually, although the concourse of this hospital is worth a lot of money in letting it out to other retail outlets like mcdonald's or starbucks or burger king that is not an ethical way to make this hospital money because it's contributing exactly to the points that you made so he 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 had one thing courage he told them all to he broke their contracts he risked his own job he told them to leave and he started a coffee shop of his own fair trade coffee of his own and then he let the companies back in again so he let Starbucks back in again and he just undercut them in price all the time, he just played them at their own game so he didn't subvert the system, he used the system to play them at their own game so when he went out to local farmers and said would you like to supply food and meat and veg and dairy to our hospital they all said oh well we tried years ago but it's all wrapped up by these huge Multinational companies, he said, That's okay. I'll teach you how to use the rules that we've got in order to not give you selective advantage, but so to make a level playing field. And he did that. And then when he got objections from people who said, You can't do this because the patients won't like seasonal food, they'll want their strawberries in the winter, he said, How on earth do we? Let's ask them. So he just asked people, and they said, And they said, well, I'm very happy the food is is getting better day by day. It's fantastic. But I don't want strawberries in the winter. I'm very happy to eat seasonal food. So the number of people you will find who will object to things because of this phrase, people won't like it, the answer is, ask them and you might be surprised. (laughs) Involve the people you purport to serve in the decision-making process about where you can buy your food, how you can buy your food, what sorts of food can you buy? And so it was an exercise, not in food, but an exercise in system change by leadership at every level. Now, when the press got to find out about it, they thought, this is great. Local hospital creates jobs. Local hospital you know, stimulates local economy. And then the real leaders of the hospital said, oh, that seems rather good news. Maybe we should be associated with that. So they were happy to stand out in front of the cameras. And my friend John was very happy to let them do it thank you david i can see other hands up now which is great
1: so up the back uh, hi david uh, my question is for you. you you've pretty much uh, talked about it
6: uh, my, my big question about the the, the fresh food in the hospitals was had all your patient food been outsourced previously or did you already have a kitchen that could provide the feed you had
2: that was a big problem actually and ha- the same happens in schools actually a lot of schools in the uk get their cooked, chill food in, or force kids to bring their own lunch in, which is often rubbish, um, and they've, they've lost their facilities to cook. That wasn't the biggest issue, actually. It was quite easy to get grants to put in kitchens. What was difficult to do was to get staff who to cook, come in and cook. So my friend John, Clever John, he went out to local agencies who worked with people with learning difficulties and not only trained them up to be food prep- preparers and thus taking people off unemployment who had found it difficult to get into work. But he then promoted them out of the health service into other jobs. So he brought them in, trained them, employed them, and then promoted them out. So it wasn't the kit that was the problem. It was the human capital that was the problem. But he solved that, and that and he's so successful, was he, that he then got a contract to supply all the food, fresh food, for Meals on Wheels for social services bringing another income stream into the... So it was, again, good news. Yeah. Good question.
1: Great. Here and then uh, over there, I think. Yeah. Um,
6: I think... Can everyone hear me? Um, in my experience, most of the big changes in the healthcare system... Thanks, David. ..have um, come from external pressures. So it's they've not come from the health system themself, itself. To what extent do you all think forcing functions like regulations are going to be a key feature if we want the health system to actually change.
2: Well, one of the things that triggered off for us, the one of the things that made it useful... I mean, laws can be very useful, but they can be counterproductive. So I think... Um, so one of the policies we adopted was to use laws to trigger the leg- legitimization of standard improvement, like food. So no laws help my friend John change the whole food system. But when you have a Climate Change Act, or a Social Value Act, or a Civil Contingencies Act, it can be very helpful because it legitimizes, it accelerates the conversation, not necessarily me coming in with a big stick. But if you say, if someone says to me, why should I consider environmental impact in the contracts I award? I can say, well, if you don't, you're breaking the law. And they go, oh, all right then, and they do it. Okay? So it's very useful. Now, if you go and read the law, and it's, it's really important to read the laws, and, and few of us do it, it only says you are obliged to consider the environmental impact in every procurement decision you make. You can, in your board, consider it and then dump it. But if you don't consider it at all, you're breaking the law. That's the Social Value Act in the UK. So laws legitimise social change, and they often seal social change as well, because the other thing to remember about large-scale change, it can sometimes go backwards. So I've been to politicians or regulators in the UK and said, you should regulate, you should make it a requirement that hospitals report on not only their financial sustainability, but on their economic... uh, On their social sustainability and on their environmental sustainability. And they say, but that increases the burden for overworked hospitals. And I say, over 60% of them are doing it voluntarily already. And they go, all right, then, we'll just seal it. And it just gets the last 40% to do it, and you normalize it. So it very rarely in our culture initiates change, but it can systematize change and seal it, Marilyn. Yeah, that's what we found anyway. Alex has got a comment as well.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. One of the things that I didn't say was that the example that I talked about with thyroid cancer is just emblematic, but that same phenomenon is happening across the board. So every time you walk around the city, you'll see billboards advertising, have a test for this or awareness disease day of that. There's this enormous expectation that we should be finding more and more diseases earlier and labelling more and more people as either diseased or at risk of disease. But there comes a point where people start to push back. So at the extreme example, you might remember a while ago we had a lot of promotion of whole body CT scanning and it was pretty rapidly apparent that that was actually crazy because all you're doing is giving lots of people, you know, diagnoses that are actually never going to improve their lives. And so there was both a regulatory and I think a community response to that, that we should wind that back because that's actually not good for anybody, it's not good for the system. Now that is happening, that kind of excess testing and therefore excess diagnosis and excess treatment is happening across the board. And as Greg said, we won't solve that by one single thing, but we do know that sometimes there will be one thing that we can do that can wind it back, as in that example. Other times, it's sometimes patient-driven. Like, for example, there's a lot of promotion of PSA testing, PSA screening for prostate cancer, early detection of prostate cancer. Now, while there are arguments in favour of that, there are also big arguments against it, and one is that you can cause a lot of men unnecessarily to wind up in hospital having operations that are not going to benefit them and actually destroy their quality of life. Now we're getting quite a strong consumer pushback to that, saying, actually, you know, we don't like being told that this cancer has to be treated, otherwise we're going to die, because quite clearly that's not the case, and saying we actually need to put some brakes on this system.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Alex. I've got a question who's been waiting up the back. Thanks very much. Um,
5: Sorry, you made the point that the renewable energy kind of generated in Northern Africa would be sufficient to meet the demands of the European health system. Yeah. And-
2: well, th- More th- than the health system, the
5: whole, well, the whole- yeah, the whole, the whole yeah. continent. So I think we're a pretty sunny country here. And aside from kind of lobbying interests and maybe you know, interference at a political level, what would be the reasons that our health system, you know, our hospitals and public health sector hasn't moved towards renewable resources, particularly with like, you know, the um, invention of like batteries now that can store energy. Yeah. Um, but do you have any like, you know, ideas for factors that may be preventing
4: us or why we're not there already? Well, I think it's... Complex reasons. Lots of reasons why not. Um, partly about the issue in all health systems that you, that you operate on a one-year financial basis and cash now, even if it's going to save you money in three years' time, is still cash now and we're close to budget. But also, I don't think the health system actually in in New South Wales, perhaps in other parts of the world, has considered it to be a core part of what it should do. In some areas, there have been tremendous uh, advances. Westmead Hospital is a good example. The um, engineer out there is just about to retire. Glenn Hadfield has done an enormous amount of stuff about cogeneration and all the rest rest of it. Um, Look, uh, one of the big things that health systems should do, apart from uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, is the kind of thing you're talking about. But to some extent health systems, uh, my experience with health systems in Australia, in New South Wales is we don't see that that's our role, it's somebody else's role, it's the role of the energy providers, it's the role of the government, and perhaps we need to turn that corner and say it is our role, and you know, collectively it's our role.
2: Yeah, i tell you what is really, can be really useful. Let me tell you some few useful things a health service can do. Every health service in every developed country owns a huge amount of roof space, okay? And that roof space is totally unused. So you can capitalize immediately on it. You can even sell your roof space, if you wish, to an energy company. You'd be daft to do that. You'd better to lease it and keep hold of it. But it's 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 an asset underused. The second thing about health services, they're big. So they can go to the energy market collectively. And this is about not doing something, but doing something together. You've got to use the size of the health service to say, we in New South Wales will guarantee to buy this many gigawatt hours of renewable energy, and you can buck the markets. People, the market then has faith to say, we'll invest in renewables. Because although building... I think you can supply the whole of Australia on uh, 40 kilometres by 40 kilometres PV array, and you've got plenty of land to do it, you could do that. It'll only cost you a few billion to do it, but it does cost billions. It's not that much on the global scale, but you do need a sizable sector like the healthcare sector to say, we stand up together collectively for economic and environmental reasons, and to be a public sector exemplar, we will invest, we promise to buy it, and the markets will change. So that's very important, but you have got to get alpha males to talk to each other to agree to do this. And we tend to granulate public sector now to make them competitive. They won't talk to each other. We don't have systems of care. We have rather competitive healthcare settings, which doesn't help. And the last thing, just to remember the facts, it's actually very easy to generate renewable energy. It's very difficult to uh, rebuild not the power stations, but the distribution systems, so for instance, India has invested a huge amount in grid just when we don 't need any grid so they 're sort of addicted to the genera- to the p- generating of power in big power stations using dirty coal, which then they can then use the grid they 've built to extend it when in fact, now you think about it you don 't need the grid, you need very local renewables so it, it's a perverse so it's largely to do with markets and largely to do with history the rationale, the logic of it is very clear as you quite rightly say it's just making that transition you know do you go straight from fossil fuel dirty fossil fuel to renewable or do you go via gas you could go via gas it's another fossil fuel about half as impactful but actually it's slowing it but making the transition easier it's a tricky issue it's a tricky issue but thanks very much, David. Now, I can see several
1: more hands up. I think we've, we've got time for perhaps three more quick questions. So up the back, we'll take all the questions at once. So first up the back, then here, then here, and then we'll ask the panel to finish, and then we'll encourage you uh, to talk to the speakers at the end. So let's hear these three questions first. Uh, Alex, you briefly mentioned or touched on the clinical aspect of, um, I suppose, more sustainable healthcare. I would like to explore this
0: more with some emerging technologies, such as personalized medicine and sort of genetic sequencing, and how that influences the treatments that will develop. And more broadly, what do you sort of what do you guys think of the uh, medical technology industry and how that can either help or hinder the efforts that you know we'd like to achieve?
6: My question pertains to the environmental impact of single-use plastics in the healthcare system. So. We know that good health practices rely on these single-use sterile, um, you know, wads of gauze or or test
3: tubes, etc. How
6: could we possibly look at changing this overproduction of plastic? And I'd like to maybe hear from you, Armina, about um, the the impact of waste in in this in, on the carbon sector. So.
1: Thank you very much. And the, f- the final question. Yeah.
6: Um, one comment that the uh, non-human patients aren't uh, represented in a seminar on planetary health of, as a veterinarian, conflict of interest. <laughs> I would have liked to see a bit more about non-human animal patients. Um, but my question is, the word activist was mentioned, and whenever I drop this at a dinner party, everyone turns around as if I've got, just said I've got herpes. Um, so I'd like to know, as a, as a team of fellow professionals, I'd be especially interested to hear from... Um, Professor Barrett and Dr. Malik, what do you think it means to be an activist professional? And perhaps from the discussion, um, at what point do we chain ourselves to
3: the mass bar machine?
1: So one more up the back. Yeah.
3: Okay. Hi, I just have a question on papillary thyroid cancer. Um, and you said that the PTC is certainly an issue in Korea, and it's overdiagnosed. I'm just wondering what's the um, papillary thyroid cancer overdiagnosis situation in Australia. Um, and would you support the new terminology that has been introduced in 2016 that removes the word cancer in low-risk um, cancer? And would this be a potential cost-saving strategy um, in the healthcare system?
1: Great. Well thank you very much. I might ask uh, Aranima to go first. Yeah.
3: Thanks for your question. Um, So when we talk about sustainability, um, we really need to look at the three spheres of sustainability, which are environmental, social and economic. Um, and the presentation that I gave today, I only just looked at one indicator, which was CO2 emissions. Um, and obviously there are others, which are waste, as you mentioned. Um, range of other emissions, nitrogen emissions, uh, biodiversity loss as well. So if you're consuming a particular good, or if the healthcare sector is buying a particular good, then obviously there are species getting affected elsewhere. Uh, and social impacts, as David showed a slide about... Um, Children working for producing some of the items that the healthcare sector uses. Um, so, for doing a comprehensive sustainability assessment, we really need to look at all these indicators in a holistic sort of framework um, to see how sustainable the healthcare sector is. Um, quantifying it first, um, and then coming up with ways um, for finding, you know, efficiency measures on how to reduce um, our impacts, uh, focusing specifically on waste. Um, I think with the recent China ban, uh, there there are opportunities for us um, to take this um, in a positive way. For us uh, to to implement strategies to be self-sufficient, so that we are able to manage our own waste. Um, Obviously, we need to look at how we can um, the inputs that are going into the healthcare sector um, and the impacts that I measured for CO2 emissions, most of the impacts come from the inputs that go into the sector. So um, we need to be more efficient about that, and we haven't quantified the waste footprint of the healthcare sector yet, so that's, that, prob- that is probably the first step. Um, and once we quantify that and the amount of different uh, inputs, um, plastic and all that go into that, um, then we can come up with, hopefully come up with ways for efficiently measuring that.
1: Great, thank you very much, Arunima. Uh, Alex, I think there were a couple of things in there for you.
3: Okay, thank you, Tony. Uh, So,
0: yeah, thank you. They're all great questions. The first speaker asked about personalised medicine. Let me try and make a kind of um, conceptual link between that and the, um, the question about papillary thyroid cancer. So David was talking before in response to the question about population, that the total environmental burden is the number of people, the size of the population, times the consumption of each individual. And I see a parallel with the health system. OK, so how the, the size of the carbon footprint of the health system is dependent on how many people are in the health system, how many people are engaged with it and being treated, and how much each of those people is, is needing to consume. The problem with overdiagnosis is that it bumps up the first one. So it increases the number of people who are... Um, kind of caught up in the net of disease and engaged in healthcare when doing so is not going to be beneficial to them. So I'm not against healthcare at all, but we want healthcare for the right people. So personalised medicine is not, I don't think, going to have any impact on that. In fact, it might make it worse. Uh, My colleague who's a a clinical cardiac geneticist, molecular cardiologist, he says that I'm authorised to say that anybody who has whole genome sequence testing is likely to wind up as a patient in one form or another because you will find something that will require you to go and have another test or some kind of clinical screening, maybe treatment. On the other hand, personalised medicine could help by winding back the treatment. So if we find, say, for example, that with some kinds of cancer, we're actually able to treat uh, people more efficiently by targeting exactly what it is that's going to work for them so we don't give them a whole lot of um, chemotherapy, for example, that they don't need, and we give them just the bit that they do need, then that, that would wind back the amount of consumption. So I think, you know, it's, there's pluses and minuses in terms of personalised medicine, and I think we need to evaluate the impacts uh, on both the size of the population that we're treating and how well we're treating people separately. Coming to papillary thyroid cancer, yes. So most of that epidemic in South Korea was papillary thyroid cancer. The uh, incidence of that has increased in Australia and in many other countries, like the US, Europe, by about threefold. So yes, we have the same problem. And part of it is actually to do with the increasing technology, because we have such sensitive scanners now that we can see stuff that in the past we would never have seen. And yes, I think the changes proposed to actually Because it's very, very, very uh, good prognosis cancer, and we probably shouldn't be calling it cancer. And there are lots of other lesions as well that maybe we should be taking the cancer term away from. Things like ductal carcinoma in situ of the breast, for example, and there are many other examples. I think we do. It needs to be a community conversation about what do we mean by cancer, actually. That needs to change as our understanding of cancer biology changes. Mm -hmm. And activism, oh, that is the toughest question of all, isn't it? Look, I think um, we have to be very um, careful and humble. Like, I think it's very easy to get kind of overexcited about your own evidence and, and overstep it. So I think we've got to be really, really careful before we start becoming activists that our evidence base is really solid because we don't want to make inadvertent errors and, you know, cause problems. But when you get to that point, when you really have enough evidence to act, then I think you just have to be courageous, don't you? And you have to go out there and you have to be... I mean, that's what's good about being at our stage of careers, is, you know, like, <laughs> you, can, you can afford to take those risks and if we commit career suicide, oh, well, you know, <laughs> hopefully it's worth it, you've, you've got to you've got to put your, your mouth where, you, where your evidence is.
4: <laughs> that's right, the, po- the post, post-ambition phase of the career. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Um, I had the word activism, but I didn't just mean chaining yourself to um, lampposts. I meant being engaged mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of go well beyond our subject tonight. The great dismay, uh, you know, in my 60-odd years is that when I was young, Gough Whitlam was elected and it was this incredible uh, era of people being engaged and involved and I don't think I'm overstating the case the disengagement of my children uh, is, is, is distressing. People don't get involved in our society. You know, Churchill was right when he said, democracy is the worst form of government ever tried except all the others that we've tried from time to time. That's what I mean. I mean engagement. I mean join a political party. I mean, you're a, you're a citizen. You're not just a health professional. Now, for a senior person like me, one must be very careful, you see. You have to make sure you toe the government line, which of course I always do.
1: Well, thanks for that. Uh, final comment, uh, Greg, there. I mean, what I would say, though, about um, the younger generation, uh, uh, if you like, what's now referred to as the post-millennial generation and what we've seen in Florida, uh, following the most recent uh, mass shooting there, is that perhaps um, uh, the post-millennial generation are seriously engaging. And, uh, and so I, I remain quite hopeful uh, about uh, uh, young people in this context. I'm going to, um, to give uh, David the, the, the final opportunity uh, to say a few words, uh, uh, emphasis on the few, uh, in response to those questions, or maybe just leave us uh, with a final
2: message. Uh, That that question about activism is very, very potent. You can be activist and engaging, or activist and very alienating. If you go up and prod people in the chest and say, you ought to do things, you ought to do this, you ain't going to make many friends. Now, the world is not about making friends, but I think the point about being being an activist with humility, by saying, I'm concerned... I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope the data are wrong. But everything suggests that we're sleepwalking into a nightmare. I think we need to be doing things and I think we need to be doing things together. And they're fun. Some of them are fun. And some of them are very fascinating and they're interesting and they make our lives meaningful and purposeful. That's the conversation that I would wish for you to be able to do even better having listened to each other and to maybe the panel members and the conversation and the questions tonight. So I would absolutely urge you to go out and have a serious conversation, first of all, with yourself, about what it is you really, really care about. Because you're never going to be a humble activist if you don't care about something. You're never going to take care of something for which you don't have respect or love or what have you. So my parting shot would be go out and have good, humble, engaging interesting, fun, important conversations with other people because ultimately what's going to change is a coherent social movement that will demonstrate up to politicians, there's votes in this, there's money in this, there's safety in this, there's security in this, there's a future in this. And that will not come by thinking it's someone else's problem. It'll come by all of us standing up, speaking up, and engaging Thank you. you.
1: Thanks thanks very much for those uh, final remarks uh, uh, from the panel and from David in particular there at the end. Uh, As we close, I'd just like to reflect on something quite positive that I read on the uh, financial review website actually late last night. And it was specifically about uh, climate change and health. You may know that... uh, uh, French President Macron is uh, currently in Australia uh, for talks with the Australian government. And uh, you may also know that he has a program to make our planet great again. Uh, he's, uh, he's clearly riffing off a certain other president in another part of the world. But what was very interesting in the newspaper today, an in, in interview with the uh, uh, French ambassador to Australia, in which the French ambassador was quoted as saying that uh, President Macron is certainly very interested in a free trade agreement with Australia, but it may take some time because the EU is wanting to ensure that health and climate change features in all future EU trade agreements. And I think things like that uh, will start uh, to shift uh, the governance uh, arrangements that we have in place, and uh, so hopefully um, uh, leaders across the EU and uh, and around the world uh, will uh, step up and uh, take this more seriously, as, uh, as David was saying, take a look uh, at themselves. So on that note, a uh, relatively positive note, uh, uh, to finish what was uh, uh, a challenging uh, topic that we traversed, I think uh, uh, David and the panel have Probably another 10 or 15 minutes here this evening. You're welcome to uh, come up and uh, have some more discussion and then follow that up uh, by email or other ways. So thanks a lot for coming along and appreciate it.
6: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events
0: or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash underscore ideas.